0: This is the podcast that we're gonna discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self Storage Income. All right, welcome everybody to Self Storage Income. I am so excited about this podcast. Um, If you are in the self-storage industry currently, you already know of Travis Morrow, and he is—I mean, there, you've done so many different as, aspects in the storage industry. It's really hard. I mean, you've done—you've—you acquired, you build everything around storage, operating, running. But two, even outside that, you go to like—I feel like a lot of people either play in the industry or they play on the periphery, right? They're either vendors or they're brokers or something like that. You've just kind of eclipsed it all, and <laughs> you are also the CEO of Store Local. Um, you're running um, the storage facilities today. I, I mean, do you still? Are you still doing brokerage too?
1: Uh, we mainly broker our own stuff now. Okay. And and so we we will still broker deals, but largely just representing ourselves or just kind of our core group of clients. Okay, and this is with national self storage, right? That's correct.
0: Yep. So um, national self-storage, you guys are in how many states?
1: Right now, we're in six states. Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Utah, and I'm missing one somewhere in there. But, uh, yeah, we're in six states right now. Awesome. And, um, uh, you know, we, we I've
0: known you. You were actually, it's funny. When we started going into this industry, after, I, we were just jumping right into this thing. When, sure. we, when I was in a, um, we had gone to a few self-storage associations a while, like in the early 2000s, when we got out of the game, we owned a few small facilities. Um, it was a totally different world back then. Um, we started, and then we decided to come back into it in a really big way, right, 2010. You were one of the first people... That I met when we were going to go big into self storage. You probably don't even remember it. The only re- re- reason I remember it is because your wife was the only one that talked to me, and she's like, "You need to come meet my husband." I was like, "Okay." So went and we met, like hanging out that night. But uh, you were like the first person I was
1: introduced <laughs> to when we were. No, I we think I do remember before. that, and 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 I I like to joke that sometimes at the events when I'm with my wife, she does all of the talking, so I don't have to. <laughs> um, and, and so I, it doesn't surprise me at all that, that she certainly spoke to you because she speaks to almost everyone. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: You married over your head. She's great. For sure. Uh, and so now, how many
1: square footage do you guys have under, and you you own and operate, is that correct? We own and third-party manage. Uh, okay. Right now, we're at about 700,000 square, no, 750,000 square feet. Plus or minus uh, across those stores. Nice. And
0: you, in when you, uh, just for people coming into the industry um, that may be looking at self storage, um, we, a lot of people do third party management. um, And that's what Travis is talking about here. And then there's uh, people that are just purely like owner operators, which as like me, I, I don't right. operate anybody else's. Um, we just operate what we own. And then there's other people that own and don't have anything to do with operations. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm so glad you came on the podcast and we get to hear from you on this side, because I think that's one of the biggest questions that people have in in the self-storage space that are looking to get into it or just trying to make their business uh, better is this operational you know, point. But sure. before we jump into operations, Tell us, give us a backstory, how you got into the industry and how you got to the place where you are, uh, where you are. And then we
1: can just rapid fire questions at you. Sure. So you mentioned my wife. I actually married into the self-storage industry. Uh, my father-in-law is Bob Schaff uh, with national self-storage. Uh, he's a industry hall of famer, been in self-storage for 45 years. Uh, He built national self storage up to 93 stores at one point and was the largest private, the sixth largest operator in the country in 2005 and the largest privately held portfolio in 2005. And that's where the third party management piece came in was they owned 70 of those stores and then they managed another 23 for third parties. Um, not unlike what the REITs are doing today. And they sold those 70 stores in 2005 to what is now CubeSmart, and we retained the third-party management piece um, since then. And so some of those portfolios that we managed have sold, and and so we've we've shrunk down. And and as I've started to do other jobs and, and, and wear different hats, you mentioned store local, Um, you know, we have our little niche portfolio and it, it works pretty well for us. But when I started in the industry, I started at National Self Storage as the consulting division manager, which is code for, I'm the guy who goes out and does feasibility studies for self storage. And so that was part of Bob's education process for me of truly learning self storage is going out and under his guidance, Learning what it takes to pick a location to build a self-storage and be able to recommend or not recommend to other people that are paying us a fee whether or not they should build a self-storage in a particular location. Were you in the real estate industry at all before this? I mean, what was? Did you have plans? Did you have plans of going into real uh, self-storage or not? Not, I mean, I joke that nobody graduated B school saying, I can't wait to get into self-storage. Um, I'd actually just come out of the army and I, I got my degree from U of A in 2003 in finance. And so I, I kind of had a, a business background and had gotten out of the army. and And if you hear Bob tell it, I asked for his daughter's hand in marriage and a job at the same dinner. Um, which is not how I remember it, but we agree to disagree. Uh, so I, uh, did not expect to be in self-storage ever until I, I really kind of got into it through Bob.
0: Hmm. And you started out trying to find, or I guess discern good locations and bad locations and
1: recommend the, the best ones that you could find. Well, I, I, I wouldn't find them. So third parties would approach national self-storage. And say, "Hey, I've got this piece of land. I need a feasibility study. You guys do feasibility studies. Tell me if this piece of land will work for a self-storage facility." Oh, so you were actually out contracting out and doing
0: the hard work and really getting in for other people. You weren't correct. Had to scrum the
1: data. I'd go visit. I'd go visit the sites and I'd do the market studies and I'd secret shop all the competition and take all these pictures and and write up the report and, and put together these 50 page reports on whether or not somebody should do a storage facility or not.
0: That is an awesome way to do like, I'm, I'm not I'm just hearing that. I'm
1: like, that's what my son's going to do. Like yeah. if he wants to come in the industry, that's the perfect it's place the to per, start. It, it's, it's a great way to learn all parts of the industry. Um, when you were doing this, and it, you know, it's
0: first of all, it's a different world, obviously, than when you started. And Certainly, everyone started. Um, and it were was National Self Storage? Were they did they already sell that first big sell when you joined, or did you did you join after?
1: No, I, I was still part. I had just started with the company six months before the sale was completed. Okay, so I, I was still with. I started with the company and we were 93 stores.
0: Got it. And you were doing and working with a third party management part, going out and doing feasibility study. Was it around where you lived or were you looking at all other markets in the nation? Were you
1: I went everywhere? I went to Cheyenne, Wyoming, I, I went all I'd over. love to see that feasibility study. I, that <laughs> one I said no. <laughs> I can imagine. It wasn't quite the population. And there was a whole bunch of storage already.
0: Yeah. And now speaking of that, I let's jump right into this, so you, this, you know, and you've seen so many projects done, you've worked with so many operators. What do you think makes a good storage location? Like if you're out recommend, recommending and looking at different markets, um, do you have a secret sauce that you're looking at for a location where you go, these are the elements that is needed to make this a home run
1: or no. I don't know that it's particularly secret um you know all the last facility that we built here in arizona was a. there was a piece of dirt 400 yards from my house that i drove by every day for nine years and said man somebody should put a storage facility right there it's the right size there's no competition in the area of merit there's you've got the population density. It's at a major corner right across the street from everybody's grocery store. So it's kind of the commercial corner of the area in in my neighborhood. And it just made total sense to me that uh, a storage facility needed to go in there. And so those pockets still exist all around the country. And so even in areas where people talk about this is oversupplied, and Now, Idaho excluded, because it sounds like stay of Idaho. There's pockets everywhere, though. But but there are pockets where you can find a five-mile ring where there's not another storage facility, but there's a lot of people, and you can service those people.
0: Yeah. You know, um, we're about to uh, buy a facility in Washington, Mm -hmm. and it's not even a half a mile down the road from our other facility. Right, and you know we we haven't bought anything for a year because some of the markets been, and we totally overlooked this, and we just totally overlooked it, and we loved that facility, and it was such a great location. Right, and I guess we just never gone back to it. Came up an opportunity, and we're like we weren't expecting to buy anything uh, this sure. year, but there is. You're right. There's always opportunities. Um, so I think you know you you mentioned population density. Do you look when you're looking at demographics? Do you look at you know, the average income? Do you look at movements? Like how many people are moving houses selling? Do you go into that?
1: I, I don't get in. I, I look at the average income. Uh, though I will tell you that while they're more difficult to manage, even storage facilities in lower income areas can do very well. Uh, I look more at rent per square foot of the market. And okay. so, you know, I've got five facilities in El Paso that we manage. El Paso gets like 95 cents a foot. And it's harder and harder to make new projects their pencil just because at 95 cents a foot. Whereas Washington, on the other hand, I wish I could get 95 cents a foot. I <laughs> but but yeah, I no. mean if you're in Seattle and it's two fifty yeah, a foot or exactly. whatever, it it, it so th- that's more my concern is what the rental rates are in the individual markets. Okay. I guess that's
0: when, when we're looking at it, we take it pretty much the same approach where I care way more about competitors than I do demographics. And I see some of these these, these stuff coming out. Well, the average income in this and these, they can spend X amount on X square foot because their disposable income stuff. And I go.
1: It's I called supply and seen-
0: demand. Yeah, I'm like, I've never really seen that matter. I'm like, it just it just tends not to. And also, too, I'm shocked because you could be in a nice area um where uh where I live. We were are in uh four different states, but in my where I'm in and you're getting sixty cents a square foot if you're lucky, right? Now you can be in an absolute poverty stricken area, Absolutely. not even near Seattle. Yeah. Not even near. You could be hours outside of Seattle. You're getting two fifty a square foot. Yep. Yeah.
1: I'm, Absolutely. it's shocking to me. Yeah. So that, it's, that, that it's doesn't com- seem to make sense. Completely market specific. Yep. Absolutely. And, and so the, that's my primary focus when we're looking at things is, is what the rent per square foot really pencils out to be. Now you, know, um, you, you can have, and I, I mentioned earlier supply and demand. Yeah. You've got 200,000 square foot of demand that's calculable based on average rent per square foot per capita, but then you've got people that say, yeah, but they've got all this money. I'm going to put in 300,000 square feet of self-storage. Well, um, that doesn't work. The the lines don't cross the right spot. Uh, So it, it, it baffles me sometimes what people will put up. And once again, that goes back to my feasibility background. And I told a lot of people no, Some of them went ahead and did it anyways and, but what I had always tell people when they do feasibility studies and I still tell people is if you're going to invest millions of dollars in a project, wouldn't you rather spend 10,000 now and feel confident moving forward or spend $10,000 and count your lucky stars that you only spent $10,000? Yeah. Well, to, to give you any idea. You know, we have, uh,
0: 1.2 million square feet, um, uh, under management that we own, we get feasibility studies. I, I'll actually go to a project. I hire a third person to look at it. Cause I'm like, you tell me what I'm missing. And right. two, so I want you to I tell me on... if I'm, if I'm stupid,
1: like, yeah, tell me. that's what I did on our last project. I, I, and I, you know, I had done all of my feasibility research that I would normally do if I was yep. doing it for a third party. But then I brought in a third party from the East Coast, and pointed to a spot on the map, and said, "I've got all the information, but I'm not going to give it to you. Here's the spot. You tell me, in your professional opinion, if this is going to be a successful project." And they agreed. He came back and and confirmed. We went forward with it. Uh,
0: I love doing that and that strategy because for me, it's a way that I can keep maybe unseen ego or maybe unseen. Like, I, oh, I love this area, or it's always been a dream for me to have a facility in this community, right? Right. And, it, and that I all of a sudden start to make up demand, right? Like, oh, well, there's some empty units, but they're not competing right. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are going to move into this area. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times there. I've heard this, right? you know And at that point, for me, that's speculation, which... Yes. Not about that doesn't work well when you're dealing with assets and the millions of dollars.
1: Never, never works well. Now, I guess
0: we're talking too a lot about development, but did you do when, when did you help people? So you, you were doing feasibility studies for development, but let's talk about acquisition. What's, what's your experience in either doing or did your third party management help people with the acquisition process?
1: Uh, we did both we we've acquired individual facilities as a result of that uh sale we had some 1031 exchange money that we needed to place so we did acquisitions for ourselves in salt lake city and las vegas uh i helped other I, I brokered a deal in green valley arizona between our former client and what became our new client for the same facility so we were running the facility the existing owner wanted to sell found him a a buyer and put that deal together and and then we're now managing for that buyer we've actually done that a couple times uh for former clients and then what became new clients
0: that can be great especially if you're looking for passive income because you know the operations i know what it's making i can tell what i'm buying and yep. then it's, that's a very keep, safe way keep to do what you're doing. It. Exactly. No, oh, I I, that could be very, cause one, like we kind of mentioned in the first, um, which I think we're getting right into now so we can talk about this. Cause you, know, you mentioned it. Uh, one, I think the biggest hurdles for people traditionally in, in self storage has been the operational aspects. Um, that's why we, that's why we got into it because we just thought we could do better operationally. Right. I, we, we could do better deals. We could operate businesses better than, the existing people we'd acquire and turn them around, um, and that's been kind of, a, you know, a hurdle for a lot of people getting into it, sure. um, and that's where you guys solved this problem. And two, we're seeing it now in, in the third party management and how that's grown. What what do you think makes a successful management company of a storage uh, a, a storage facility storage operation?
1: So the thing that National Self Storage when they came on the scene really wanted to bring change to the industry was to just increase the level of professionalism. You know, it used to be even, and I've walked into many offices that were run this way, but it's, you know, Ma sitting there smoking cigarettes in her muumuu and, you know, comes out from, from her living room on the other side of the office and like, can I help you? And you know not the experience that you're necessarily looking for and so we wanted to bring professional managers professional management and traditional business practices to self-storage way back in the 80s Uh, and that has always evolved ever since then with you know we were very very early adopters of online at least having a website going all the way back to 1998. Um, we've we've owned nationalselfstorage.com since 98. We were really early adopters as well of uh, call centers and created our own call center that became a third party call center that was av- made available to the entire market called Call Maximizer. National has always been kind of trying to stay on the leading edge of where the industry is going and I think we're continuing to do so today. Now, tell me, we, we, you talk about this and as storage operators
0: where obviously it's no secret and you align very much as, because we are large operators and lots of the large operators around the nation are at least have moved this way. But tell me for a person that either is looking to own a storage facility and like, I'm going to save the spread on the management fee because at the end of the day, they're just renting a box. Or I'm going to cut all the expenses because one of the things we did is we actually front loaded our expenses into our management company and acquired storage facility. So we were spending money on the management company to run the facilities as we bought the facilities to build it up because we thought, no, we have to run these things incredibly. That's our our business model. For someone looking at it saying, though, I don't want to spend the money. It's a storage facility. It's a box, right? I'm going to hire a manager. I'm going to let her run it make money. Um, what is the difference in performance and why does that matter compared to, uh, national self-storage, extra space, a key or whoever, right. That, that does
1: higher level management. So that is what brings a lot of people to the industry. And why ISS gets 4,000 people that show up is because they read in self and wall street journal that self-storage is the place to be. And while we're not, as complex as many other businesses, when you actually get into the day-to-day operations of self-storage, it becomes complex. And if you want to do it well, there's even more complexities on top of that. You know, if you're going to hire a manager and just she's going to run your facility, um, what does she know about the lean process? The largest exposure that we have to liability of anything out there. How do you know that she's doing it correctly? What oversight are you able to provide? What do you know about the lean process? How are you going to ensure that you're covering yourself just in that one instance? And then, you know, from a customer service standpoint, how do you treat your customers? What are your policies and procedures to ensure that you don't have people sleeping in units or your manager isn't stealing from you? All of these different things, that happen at every storage facility in the country, that if it's day one self-storage, you're not gonna know that. And you're gonna have to learn the hard way, whereas a management company that is a professional third-party management company, they can step in and say, okay, we need to do X, Y, and Z, and we'll make these changes, and we're gonna raise these rents, and we're not gonna be upset if somebody moves out because we expect them to move out because we're trying to manage the revenue and increase the revenue and we do these things without blinking because we know that they work. Whereas if it's day one in the industry, you know, no self storage operator has ever been uh, accused of spending too much money. We're all quite thrifty and that can be to our detriment in many cases. So with a third party management, we've learned some stuff the hard way but we also know what works now and we can make those decisions quickly and have a quicker impact on the operations of a facility than somebody just coming in the first time
0: you know i i like to think about this as um you know and and we're talking about operating storage facilities in general like if you're operating it yourself third-party management however you're doing it because once again we operate ours by ourselves but when we came into it we realized if we're going to do this we got to do this right it, there's no in between and right. i think the reason we we realized is the spread of revenue that was being left on the table and i'm talking about we'll take over facilities and they're just not even collecting 12% of the revenue the rent the rents are all over the board and all lower um there's street rates are not equal to their current tenant. So right. when you're underwriting the facility and looking at the income based upon simply what they could be collecting, all of a sudden you're like, well, there's a 20% increase of in revenue. Yeah, That is just the market, right? And then once you start getting into the sales closing process and offering other lines, everything from services and boxes and insurance, right? And then your manager looks professional, so you're getting a higher end, um, longer staying tenant,
1: the revenue is not even comparable I mean yeah I you know you go in and take over a new property you put a professional operation in and then you send out your rent increases and when the tenant gets the rent increase they say oh well I see all that they've done makes sense to me moving on
0: I Okay. So I got, I got a quick story cause you're going to love this one. <laughs> you're going to relate to it. Cause a lot of people, when we did it, like lost their minds. Um, we bought a facility at auction and it was in Boise and, uh, um, this facility was owned by the, the state. So it was owned by the state of Idaho, which was very controversial. Hence the reason they had to auction it. Right. They were competing with their all, other businesses and they didn't have to pay taxes. Um, so not a fair competition, but, with that said, though, the state, because they were nervous about it, they're like, listen, we're going to hire this manager, put her in there, but we don't want to do anything with running it, right? Sure. We, we just don't want to. So she just sat in there and ran it. And so it was ran extremely monopol And when we looked at this, um, we saw all these things that we just talked about that we could do. Well, we bought it. Our average rental rate increase the day after the documents were signed was 67%. Some of them were a 160 to 200% in one day. We lost 30% of our occupancy. Yeah. Four months later, we were fuller than when we'd bought it. Had it all back. Exactly. And we had increased our gross revenue by it was like 38 to 40% in three months alone. Yeah. Um, and now this is an extreme case I'm talking about. That's
1: that's a home run, home run. It's a home
0: run, totally extreme, everything like that. But two, also we were very extreme in the way we went about it. Most people would be very nervous to walk in and say, yeah, we're just going to double everybody's rates. And two, also we had to deal with it because it was hell for six months. People were ready to kill us. Right. But it's a great to be like example of what's happening and do all we really did was match what the market was doing. Right. So with, with the tenants, it's not like all of a sudden we
1: were screwing. They can't go somewhere else and be 67% less again. Yep, exactly. That didn't exist. Um, and I think this, it, that's, that right
0: there is the perfect example of you're, you're literally taking apart when you go in and buy a facility that's being ran, it's like a market inefficiency and you're just evening it out. Yep. So when people get into this industry, I'm like, don't, don't be that guy right? You want to make good money. And two, also, I think a lot of people are getting into it now they're developing and they're not, they think they're going to manage it. And we see this in our market. You see it in yours. And they're building at the highest cost that our industry has ever seen with the most competition ever being built. And now this comes into another uh, segment I want to talk to you about is your competitive advantage in the marketplace. And how do storage operators gain that? How do they do that? So we're talking about, you know, you, you gotta uh, be professional and look good and raise rates, but how do you gain a competitive advantage when you have storage facilities being built around you or you're coming into the market for the first time? And you're like, I want to, you know, I need to fill up. I gotta, I gotta make this work.
1: How do you do that? So if you're building a new property, you've got all the opportunity in the world because starting with the design of your facility, you know, we're a long ways now from the single story drive up with the swing gate, uh, self storage facilities, the modern generation V, some people call them generation vertical multi-story facilities. They're essentially big boxes, but with a big box, you can do on the outside, whatever you want, and you can make it as pretty, as it needs to be, A, to make the city happy so that they'll let you build it, but B, to truly wow your customers a little bit into saying, I can store my stuff there. And you add some you know, modern customer experience features, digital signage, um, new tenant interface type things that you and I both have at a couple of our properties. Uh, there are access control systems out there that allow people to use their phone. Uh, To not only access the facility but access their individual unit, Uh, those type of products and and design features. When a customer comes to the facility, they say, "Well, why would I want to store anywhere else? This is how storage is done." You like shine. It's just correct.
0: Like, like, I I love that idea. Like, why would I store anywhere else? It's it's you're not competing. Almost. It's like you're you're a totally different product. I don't know right. if you ever saw the they have a facility. It's an extra space facility down in um, Naples, Florida. It was okay. in the Wall Street Journal, which was funny because it came out this huge article in the Wall Street Journal, right? But I'd been down there. I was so I I had a other business down down there that I was operating, and before that article ever came out, so. It. But it looks like a hotel. I yes. mean, it looks like a be a Four Seasons or something, Absolutely. and. I mean, I pull up and look at this thing, and I had passed this for months and not known that it was a storage facility.
1: Right, and well, you're—it's so, a, a high, high-end area. Yeah, the the our Marana facility that I referred to earlier. Uh, when we built that, our town of Marana is where we're the municipality we were dealing with, and 2010ish they opened a a new Ritz Carlton and it's a beautiful property. um, Six stars. I mean, it's a really nice property. And the town of Marana is really, really proud of that property. So when I met with my architect, I said, Hey, let's go have breakfast at the Ritz so that I can show you some of the design features that the Ritz used. And so we went not only to the hotel, but then we went down to, the country club and it was designed by the same architect and had some of the similar features. And so I was showing my architect that stuff. And one of the features at the country club was, they call it the Kiva room, but it's this round rock tower. And my architect took notice of that. And when they came back with the designs, we had this round rock tower and it was designed to kind of match the Ritz Carlton. and and people have also said, it thought that we were a hotel. They just didn't, you know, this multi-story thing with the windows and the, the awning on the side, they thought we were a hotel. And I take that as a compliment. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Um, we and you, I, if,
0: When I look at it, our prize, I think property that we look at, same thing, it was a ground up. And um, so we were able to build, you know, big open space where people could come in. And uh, you know, our market is like twenty years behind your markets, right? Uh, so <laughs> we're like, you know, when we built it, there's no, there was no REITs or anything in our market at all. Right. right? And um, it was, they, it was something the market had never seen. The banks told us that they had people taking the bank saying, "I want to build that. I want that." And when we opened it up. We had a line, and our opening area is massive. I mean, the amount of square feet, you know, thirty foot ceilings and everything, and it went out the front and out the back, lined up to rent storage. Absolutely. Never seen anything like it. Yeah, but it, it, it's right. All of a sudden, like you're saying, we weren't competing. We were like a different thing there. Right. And so, no, that you're right. Development gives you that huge advantage. Now, how about acquire? If you come and acquire a facility
1: that needs work?
0: How do so you compete?
1: There are actually, you can, even in an existing facility, and you know people use the phrase lipstick on a pig on occasion, but it can be a really effective tool if people have been driving by what they thought was a really kind of run down, beater old facility. But if you're willing to go in and put some money into it, and you built that into your acquisition costs and your overall model for what you're planning on doing with that project. You can reskin that sucker, new doors, paint, landscaping, asphalt, and turn it into what looks like from the outside a very new facility. And just that impact on the market where people are like, oh, that place was such a piece of crap. To oh, wow, look at that place now, you know, you're, you're, while you're not a brand new, newly developed facility, you're at least trying to, you know, drag yourself back up there.
0: You mentioned this earlier, um, in our discussion here, which I I, I think is, um, really relevant, uh, relevant, um, that it too, it, people aren't as mad about rate increases when you do that, because right. then, the, then they see that value that they're, that you're if, bringing to them
1: if if people see that you're spending money to improve the service that you're offering them, they rarely have any objection because you're for the rent that they were paying you, then you put all this money in, they understand that you know your costs have gone up and 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 they understand rate increases. They're quite common. I always use the electric company as an example, you know. My electric bill goes up every year. I don't know about yours, but uh, it's life. that's what happens with storage.
0: Yep. Um, okay. We, we've t- touched on a few of these tools and I, I really want to dive into a couple of them because there's so much buzz. Um, and for me and you, this is a great topic because we are uniquely able to talk about them. I think um, I know where we're going. Yep. So let's talk about technology and how this online rental and more of an automated newer facility works and looks and how and the tools that you're using today to
1: to accomplish this so the modern customer experience is what I've been going around the country speaking on and I was in London last week speaking on this exact topic and and that is Modern customers, not self-storage customers, but modern customers want the ability to interact with businesses in a different way than self-storage has traditionally been used to. And that is largely via their phone. And I, I show some interesting stats in some of my presentations, but one of my favorite ones is the average number of phone opens per day in the United States is 49. If you have a smartphone, you unlock your phone 49 times a day. Even if you're part of the silent generation, the World War II generation, they unlock their phone 19 times a day. Millennial 77. <laughs> um, but so the average is 49. and. If you look at your phone and all of the real estate that is on your phone and all the businesses that occupy the real estate on your phone, I've always said I wanted my self-storage facilities to be able to occupy that real estate as well. Because with Amazon and Uber and banking and you name it, you can do it on your phone. Well, I should be able to- You can't. To do, you don't do it anymore. Correct. And, and so I should be able to do the same with my self-storage facilities. So starting with my website, um, which we had put together through our uh, cooperative store local, and we can talk more about that later, Um, but we built what we felt was the best customer experience from an online standpoint to be able to move in a customer paperlessly from start to finish. and. Not have uh, any hurdles placed in front of the customer. Now, the one hurdle that was left was in in normal self-storage operations. If if you're not running a fully automated facility, we always on a vacant unit you, we traditionally put a yellow lock on, and if a customer was sitting outside your facility on Sunday night, when your office is closed and they go on their phone and they go through this beautiful rental process and they sign their lease and they get their gate code and they pull up to their unit, there's a yellow lock on it and there's nobody there to take that yellow lock off. So that still by my definition, was not a complete online rental. And then 2017, I connected with Janus International and they had partnered with a company called Noki, and we're bringing out uh, Noki Smart Entry uh, to the self storage market. And Noki Smart Entry was a Bluetooth electronic lock that was mounted behind the door that would allow, once a customer completed that online move in process, for the customer. To receive a, a text message, to download an app on their phone that would then give them access to their unit and essentially automatically remove that digital yellow line. And, and which that was facility? the first time that a complete online move-in could really be completed. And which facility did you roll this out in? That was that Marana facility. The Ritz Carlton. Yep. I mean. If- the looks come
0: with the expectations.
1: Well, yeah, and and when people see that system at the Morana, the, the word we hear more than anything is, wow. I mean, they're just blown away. And 75% of my customers are retirees. So they're really blown away. Like they think it's the neatest thing in the world that they can unlock their unit with their phone. So, you know, background, you were doing this and we were right
0: on your heels and you rolled yours out. And so you were telling us, oh, it's great, everything. We rolled it out and I got to tell this experience because it's so awesome. I think it speaks volumes to the system. I go, I flew in there and this was probably five months, six months after being open. And I flew in, I'm headed to the storage facility, Grab my Uber, right? On the way to the Uber, the Uber takes me to the facility and goes, hey, I rent here. And I'm like, oh, well, that's awesome, thank you. And I asked him, I'm like, why'd you choose for us? And he goes, you kidding? I'm an uber driver my whole life's on my phone right here I'm like right. oh that's great so right get up anyway i get an uber to go back to the airport to leave uber driver pulls up um i get in new uber driver and he goes hey i rent here oh that's amazing and i was like are you kidding me and he's <laughs> like no i love the online features about it and both of them they're like i'm an uber driver i have off hours i mean like that it's just you know gotta work with my schedule but i'm, I'm sitting here going Two people, they'd never met our manager ever. Sure. They never even met him. they don't have to. They don't have to. And they're like, that was my options. I took it. And that's how they they loved it. They,
1: They thought it was the coolest thing they'd ever seen. I absolutely want to give my customer the choice with how they choose to interact with us. So if they don't want to talk to my manager, they absolutely do not have to. As long as they pay their bill on time, we'll be good. And we had a customer come in New Year's Day. Office is clearly closed, but we watch them on the camera, rent on their phone, we see it come in through the property management software. They got the app. We watch them download the app. We watch them walk up to the door. We watch the door open, go to their unit, they're in, take off and leave. And that is a hundred percent what that system is for. Is for that off hours whenever the customer wants to do business with me, I want to be available to do business with them. So, we're the you
0: know we're we're the same as in um, ours. uh, To give you any idea, uh, people are like this is too complicated. Um, The facility that we did it in was a bankrupt Super Kmart, 160,000 square feet. We have um, three gate entries. We have six doors, two different sides, two drive aisles that you can get in from this entry system. Yep. The complexity Plus. of doing that on your phone. I mean, and guess what? They love it. People love it. Yep. They they drive in, they drive up, they drive through, they rent online. And that is, you know, for people I look that have just normal pull-up facilities, and like, ah, it's too complicated. I'm like, please. You know, th- and me and you, we were the first ones that were doing this. Yeah, and it was on facilities that were complex. And so like our normal drive-ups, we're expanding them now. And I, I don't know about how you're doing, but we're adding them in our, all, our, all our projects currently today. And any projects
1: that we do in the future, we will never not do it. 100%. I, I will not build another facility without that system. And the thing that I tell people is, for the next five years, if you have that system, you have a competitive advantage. 10 years from now, if you don't have that system, you're going to be functionally obsolete. Exactly what I say. I'm I'm like, you guys don't understand.
0: This is the market. Like, you're just 10 years behind. Like if you're building a facility today and you're not putting it in, every year from here on out, your product type will be irrelevant in a large segment of the market that wants to buy and rent online.
1: And I, I use, I like to use a quote from, uh, Don Clausen, my former partner. Why would I open a facility that on day one is going to be outdated? Yep.
0: It's a perfect, perfect way to look at it now. Okay. First of all, I want to address the screams that I hear in cars as they're listening to our podcast and saying, you know, all sorts of things. And I'm gonna address a few of these right now because I've major issues with the people that are anti this for a few reasons. The first one is, I hear a lot of screams, and if you are a manager at a storage facility today, and this is ticking you off or making you mad, this is not to replace your job. No, you cannot think that. Now, I know that there's a few people out there that have a storage facility and they're saying that it's going to replace their job. Well, them and their 10,000 square feet of storage, maybe. But me and my 150,000 square feet, never. In fact, at our facility that we have a completely automated system, we have more managers at that facility than any other facility
1: we (laughs) own. Well, it's true. The, The system is truly to streamline some of the time consuming more menial tasks that a manager has to do to allow a manager to focus on things that we're more interested in, like renting more units and collections and callbacks Correct. and customer service which in and then in tune
0: lies into a higher revenue per square foot, which then makes me way more money and yeah. so it, it's i i just i've heard that time and time and time again, and I don't want people that um, running their own facility. It doesn't replace you. It's not that it's an option and there's a segment of the population that you will get that you wouldn't have gotten if they had to deal with you. And that's just true.
1: Correct. There's no such thing as an unmanned facility. Yes. Because somebody's still got to pull out the couch that they leave in their unit and make the unit ready for releasing. Yeah. Always, always will be as
0: long as there's people on the site moving, stuff. And the bigger you go, the more complex these things are getting, the more sophisticated you have to be. You need people there to support it and run it. So um, I think that's the first thing that I want to get. The second thing that I want to talk about is the uh, justification that um, I'm not going to put it in because the cost, and I'm trying to lower my capital uh, um, input into this job or into this project so that I can make a better return
1: on my money. So that one I get that one a lot and it blows my mind because, and maybe it's just cause I'm so focused on customer experience and the modern customer experience. But the cost of the system is just the cost of providing that experience. And once again, for five, for the next five years, that's good for me cause I'll have a competitive advantage 10 years down the road. I'm gonna be screwed if I didn't spend this today. And in the grand scheme of a new development that's gonna cost you between six and eight million dollars, if you're spending 125, 150 thousand dollars, it's not that big a number when you look at it that way. Especially because you know the old way of doing it was to put individual door alarms and and cameras everywhere and 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 whatnot. Well, it's still 185 bucks a door anyway with keypads and all the other stuff. So the the cost difference is not any impact in any of my decision-making and clearly not yours because you and I have both said, we're, we're doing it no matter what. But for the, those guys who are like, it's just too expensive. It's not, it really just isn't when you're thinking about it in terms of the customer experience that you're trying to provide to the modern self-storage customer.
0: Okay. Now. I want now before, before we end here, we have to end talking about one other major thing. I really need to get um, um, not just your opinion, but I, we need to hear it from. And the reason I want to end with this is there could be, there could be a lot of listeners that are sitting here right now going, you guys have overwhelmed me. This is complicated. This is a, first of all, it's not, I'm not a smart guy. Um, you could figure it out. There's so much help in the industry. And so many people that are moving this way, right. We didn't do this alone. It's not figured out. It's not like anything like that. Right. So the, one of the best things that I I think for individuals that you're new to self storage, you have one or two stores, but you're looking to compete. You're looking to take it to the new, you you need to have help in this fast pace, you know, for storage facilities, we're fast changing right now. (laughs) So, uh, but, But, um, this is like the purpose of store local, which you are the CEO. So Correct. tell us about that. And, you know, all these people that are now overwhelmed by hearing us talk about all these different things that you need to be having, or you can't compete. And they're nervous going, I'm never listening to this podcast again. Cause this is terrifying. Right. Um, you know, uh, we've well, we got an answer school. for you.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, Store Local is a cooperative of independent self storage owners. There's about 140 independent companies that are members of Store Local currently. Uh, they represent just over 1,200 self storage facilities in about 39 states across the country. That is a knowledge base of self storage that no one else could hope to have access to. And so as members of the co-op, we are, the co-op was built to provide products and services and solutions for those members and help them solve problems that come up on an operational basis. So for example, I mentioned the website product that we discussed earlier that we use at our facilities. That product was created uh, out of necessity because we didn't feel the websites that were out there from our vendors were adequately serving our customers. So the group of 140 member companies got together and created their own website product, which many of us now use. Um, we, with that scale, we're also able to have provide partner benefits. So we've got 26 different partners or, or vendors that believe in what the co-op is doing. And is offering their products and services to our members at special pricing or, or service levels that you wouldn't be able to obtain as an individual operator. And the the most important thing that the co-op is focusing on is really solving problems for operators, and that's what we're talking about. So if you're a one-store operator and you don't know how to handle this tenant, or you've got a question about, you know, which way can I go? here or there what do you think about this technology versus this technology thousands of different questions that independent operators are faced with well the great thing about the co-op is you as a member you can come to the co-op and find answers to those questions and if for some reason the co-op isn't able to answer you directly through those hundred and forty member companies we can point you in the right direction or find the answer because most likely someone has dealt with that exact situation you're trying to find an answer to. Well, I mean, you're talking about guys that have a you know, billion dollars in assets. Absolutely. And the great thing about the co-op is we can approach those guys and say, hey, I've got single store operator in Alaska that has a question about X, Y, or Z. And we haven't dealt with it before, but you have a facility in Alaska. What do you do? And, oh, yeah, we dealt with that last year, and this is what you do. And we pass that information back along to our member at Alaska, and we solve their problem. And that's the value that we're creating for the members through, you know, the, you know, as they're paying us their membership dues, we're creating that value for them that's either saving them real dollars from a vendor perchance, or operational efficiencies that equal real dollars.
0: No, oh, I mean, huge dollars. When we came into it, our our savings on the credit card processing were astronomical. Yeah. I mean, it didn't just pay for our dues. It doubled. So we made money off the co-op the, you know, first month uh, uh, we joined it. And so, right. it, you know, it, it's, and there's that leverage power because, you know, you got Travis here who's going to vendors and saying, so would you like to work with, you know, thousand plus facilities which to them they're sitting here going if we could ever have a chance to reach these people it would take years if we had that opportunity and you bring it to them in a nice package so you say but you got to give them all these great pricing and they're like well of course why wouldn't we do that it makes total sense then you pass that on to the it's it's a great great system for independent operators that are trying to make
1: your desire is to remain an independent business operator uh, store local is really the answer for that you know not only are we providing those solutions and services for people and continue to build and provide uh, new things that are coming around the corner um, the other thing that store local is is a voice in the industry and a big one there are lots of things happening in the vendor world and private equity and, and a bunch of, you know, everybody's got their own opinion of what's going on. But with store local, you at least have a voice in, in what's going on out there. And that's an important piece as opposed to just being along for the ride and being at the mercy of, of whatever shakes out, you know, store local wants to provide independent owner operators a choice. and never have them be dictated to by anyone hey okay you know first of all and
0: you know we're running out of time here i just got to tell you thank you so much for coming on here you know and i mean this in the most sincere way possible everybody if there's anybody in the industry you know that you could reach out that is going to just be more than helpful in any way shape or form you can. It's Travis. He has been that way for us and everyone that knows him. Um, And that's why he gets pulled in so many directions from lots of different people and operators. But um, thank you for coming on, sharing your knowledge. And how can people get a hold of you? Like if people are looking for you, where do they go?
1: Um, They can go to store local.com and you, that will put you in contact with our team, which uh, will certainly get them. uh, They'll, get in contact with me or get me in contact with you. And I'm always happy to help. You're absolutely right. Thank you for having me on, AJ. Thank you. And we'll have that in the show notes. So thanks again.